Our scripture reading this morning is Romans 12, verse one and two. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to be here. If you were not in the announcements, uh, my name is Joe Johnson. I'm the RUF campus minister at Mississippi State, but I do want to ease your concerns. I went to the University of South Carolina, so I'm a friendly person here, basement dwellers of the SEC East, not a threat. But um, my wife and I moved uh, to Starkville about six months ago uh, to start work with RUF there at Mississippi State. Before that, we were at Birmingham Southern College with RUF there. RUF, for those who don't know, we're Reformed University Fellowship. We are the campus ministry of this church's denomination. And so what we've chosen as the PCA is to send an ordained campus minister uh, to that campus to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. And I have the joy of doing that at Mississippi State, and we love it. Uh, my wife and I were both converted at college, her at Auburn, and me at, um, at USC. We love being a part still of Christ's mission um, to the college uh, campus. And so before I even really begin, I wanted to give you a little bit of update on how it's going. Uh, I moved in the middle of a pandemic. And so a uh, very strange time to take up a new call as a pastor. And so I met my ministry in a mask. And, um, and for most of the semester, there were some students I never saw without a mask. Well, we had our beach retreat a little while ago that we did with Ole Miss, and um, about 100 students from Mississippi State were there, and there were some that I had to ask my interns who they were um, because I thought I had never seen them before, and my intern would have to say, actually, they were in freshman Bible study every week. I just never saw them without a mask, and so it was a strange semester, and great things happened. Uh, our group grew. Our, uh, we saw great things happen in the lives of students, but I would be dishonest if I didn't tell you that at the end of my semester, I was just discouraged. Um, I only thought about what we couldn't do, uh, the events that we had to cancel because of COVID. Uh, we had to cancel two large groups because of weather, not COVID, because of weather. Uh, we couldn't do our conferences. We couldn't do a lot of things that I had dreamed and, and, and was excited about to take campus and to see our group do these things. And one by one, they sort of fell um, by the wayside. And so by the end of the semester, I was just in the pits. I was, I was discouraged. In our last large group, which went fine, uh, we heard from our seniors. I left a little discouraged, um, kind of milling around with students, thinking about what we couldn't do. And a student of ours came up to me and showed me how sweet Jesus could be. A student of ours who uh, got involved in our ministry slowly, hesitant at first. She has a history of uh, mental health um, issues and even self-harm, but found REF really to be a safe place for her, for community and friendship. And she came up to me excitedly saying, Joe, Joe, I want you to meet this person. Um, and I knew exactly who she was talking about. It was a girl that she had told me she was bringing to RUF over and over again that, that she didn't think was a Christian, had a similar background as this girl. And so I was excited to meet her. And, and you know, as a campus minister, if there's a, if there's a visitor at the last large group, you're pretty excited that someone new is still, still coming and went up and talked with her. And we talked, I did the campus minister thing, uh, how the semester go, how summer going to go. And eventually she said, I just wanted to let you know that after last week's large group, uh, I became a Christian. 
And as a campus minister, a million thoughts go through your head when that happens. Is this real? How do we follow up with her? How do we get her connected to a church? Um, But I'm sad to say that the first thought that entered my mind was, last week's sermon was terrible. Like, that's that's what did it? That's how Jesus decided to work? And it showed me this lesson that I hope I carry on for the rest of my ministry, that Jesus tends to work in places that I'm not looking and so as uh, we look forward to the fall, um, we're hoping to be back in Dorman Hall, which we've been in for over 40 years. We're hoping uh, we can do our conferences. We're hoping we do all this stuff, and I'm excited. But I think my prayer has changed, uh, that I want to see Jesus work in places that, that I'm not looking, because that tends to be where he does his best work. So pray for us in Mississippi State and for all your campus ministers. And if you know someone going to Mississippi State or is already there, please let me know. I would love to connect with them in that way. But I'm not here just to talk about Mississippi State, RUF. I'm also here to preach. And so we'll be in Romans chapter 12, looking at the first two verses that were just read. Uh, It was a few years ago that my daughter, who's now five, uh, learned a word. She spoke very early in her life and has not stopped since, but learned a word that was a very powerful word, a word that controlled our house, a word that impacted all the mood of the house, the culture of the house, everything. And the powerful word that she learned was Alexa. She learned how to control Alexa, which meant, for our house in particular, she could control the music of the house. And so my wife and I always have music on. We like a wide variety of music, um, and it's on all the time in the background. But for the past two years, we've really only listened to two albums, which is Frozen 1 and Frozen 2. And I start with that because last time I was here, I opened with a Pixar illustration. I'm opening with a Frozen illustration, and I wanted you to know why. I want to use an Atlantic article. I want to use a New York Times bestseller. But here's where I am. Frozen 1, the album. There is a song on it called Fixer Upper. It's not, one of, uh, not Let It Go, not one of the bigger ones, but a catchy one. And it's later on in the movie convincing two characters to get together that he's a little bit of a fixer-upper, but that's okay. You should love him anyways. And it's always stuck out to me because of one line in the song that talks about how people change, or more accurately, how people don't change. And so this is going to be kind of strange, but I'm going to read uh, the bridge of the song here from Frozen 1. This is what they say. We're not saying that you can change him because people don't really change. We're only saying that love's a force that's powerful and strange. People make bad choices if they're mad or scared or stressed. Throw a little love their way, and you'll bring out their best. True love brings out their best. Everyone's a bit of a fixer-upper. That's what it's all about. Father, sister, brother, we need each other to raise us up and round us out. Everyone's a bit of a fixer-upper, but when push comes to shove, the only fixer-upper fixer that will fix a fixer-upper is true love. Amen. You may go in peace. You've been blessed by Frozen. (laughs) We love Frozen. We'll probably watch it later this week. But there is something discouraging in those words that sticks out to me, that people don't really change. And that the best you can hope for is to love them and that maybe their best might come out. It might round them out a little bit to make them better people. And I wonder if we're tempted to think of Christianity like that. That Christianity, we can't expect huge, deep change in our lives and in our hearts. We can't expect massive life changes, but really maybe it'll just bring out our best to round us out a little bit, to make us a little bit better. Because if you're anything like me, the most discouraging thing in your Christian life is that when you look at your life, 
Over the years, you see a lack of change. I actually heard John Piper say once at a conference that the thing that brings the most doubt into his life about Christianity is not some philosophical argument against God, and it's not some crazy suffering that enters into his life. That actually sends him running towards Jesus. What brings the most doubt in his life about Christianity is that when he looks at his heart, he sees a lack of sanctification, a lack of holiness, a lack of growth. And I wonder if we're all in that boat. If you look at your life now and you might think, am I really still struggling with this sin that I've been struggling with for decades? That you look at your anger and wonder, shouldn't I have this under control by now? But actually, as the years go on, it seems to have gotten worse. Or we look at our anxiety, that no matter how many times we read that passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, we're still anxious about tomorrow. And maybe it's actually gotten worse over the years. How do we change as God's people? Well, this passage, these two verses in Romans, actually give us a great deal of hope this morning. Because what Paul is really going to say is that the gospel that saves you is the gospel that changes you. That Jesus did not save you to leave you on your own or to leave you where you are, but to transform you into new creations, into new beings, into a new life. And so this morning, I want to talk about gospel change, not superficial change, not shame-based change, but gospel change. That's what I want to see in my students and that's what we want to see in the lives of our church. But what does gospel change look like? Romans 12 tells us, and it's three things. Gospel change begins and ends with grace. It's all about grace. It encompasses all of life, and it's slow. Gospel change is all about grace. It's all of life, and it's slow. So first, gospel change, it's all about grace. It begins and ends with grace Uh, These verses, these two verses, are transitional verses in Romans. I know I'm sort of plopping us right in the middle of this book, but Romans can really be divided into two parts. The first 11 chapters of Paul's letter here is really Paul explaining the gospel, what it is, unpacking grace after grace of the good news of Jesus. He talks about our sin and what we deserve because of our sin, yet he talks about that God made a way, a way for him to save his people. That, that righteousness may manifest apart from the law, that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that Jesus was our propitiation, our wrath quencher, that he went into our place, that we may have life in him, life in the Spirit, and life that can never be taken away. It's a forever love from the Father, and that he looks at us as sons and as daughters. Romans 1 through 11, gospel explained, gospel glorified, but in chapter 12, Paul shifts his focus a little bit to not gospel explained, but now gospel applied. What does this mean for our lives and the way that we live? But what he's not doing is leaving Jesus behind. What he's not doing is saying, okay, here's what Jesus did for you. We talked about that, but now we want to talk about the mess of your life and how you fix it. No, 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 no. What Paul is going to do is root all of these imperatives, and there are a lot of imperatives coming. He roots it all in what Jesus has already done. He roots it all in the good news of the gospel. And we know that because he starts this out by using the word, therefore. What he's saying is that since Jesus has done this stuff, since Jesus has rescued you, since Jesus clothed you with this righteousness, since he is with you in spirit, 
Since he's molding and shaping you, now, therefore, here's what's true. You are different. A new life. A new creation. Because we are so tempted to reverse what Sinclair Ferguson says, the grammar of the gospel. We want to put imperative first, what we do first, so that we can earn Christ's love. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It starts with what Jesus has done. And since that's true, therefore, here's what's coming. Here's what's true. But it's not only because of this word, therefore, it's also this little prepositional phrase that I love. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And I love this phrase because it's completely unnecessary. Why? Because Paul has talked about the mercies of God for 11 chapters, on and on and on. But it's as if Paul, before getting to all these imperatives and all these gospel commands and applications, it's as if he can't help himself but to appeal to God's grace one more time that this is not about you. This is not about what you're able to do. This is about the mercy of God for his people. It's all rooted in grace from beginning to end because isn't that the Christian life? The posture of the Christian by the mercies of God. That by the mercy of God, I have my breath today. That by the mercy of God, we're here gathered as his people. That by the mercy of God, we have our being. By the mercy of God, we have our family. By the mercy of God, every day on this side of hell is pure and utter grace. That's the posture of the Christian. And that is the beginning of gospel change. To admit our need, our weakness, that we can't do anything about our sin by ourselves. We can't do anything about our anxiety on our own. That we can't do anything about our anger that's out of control. But by the mercy of God, there's hope for sinners such as us. By the mercy of God. But here's where that's uncomfortable. Because we hate admitting need. And we hate showing weakness. This is a number of years ago. It's two years ago now that I embarrassingly got into a running accident, trail running and hyperextended my knee and broke the top of the tibia plateau, which meant that after having a baby two months ago, and at that point having a three-year-old too, I had to call my wife to tell her I'm going to be on crutches for 12 weeks. And I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world that's ever happened. My wife might beg to differ. That might have been the worst thing that could have happened to her. But for 12 weeks, I couldn't walk. And it happened the day, after, day before graduation at Birmingham Southern and lasted throughout the whole summer. And so for 12 weeks, I had to ask for help. That I was uncomfortable, not just because my knee hurt, but because I, as someone who is a professional at hiding weakness and need, I couldn't hide it. I had to ask my daughter for help, who was faster and stronger than me. I had to ask my wife for help. I had to have my neighbors mow my yard. Old ladies held the door open for me at restaurants. I couldn't hide my need for maybe the first time in my life. And it was actually great for me to lean into that, to see that I'm not omnipotent, but that I actually am in need of something greater than myself. We're bad at doing that. But what is it today that you need to bring to Jesus to say, I can't do anything about this. I can't fix my marriage. I can't fix my kids. I can't, I can't deal with this anger. It's too much for me, but oh, by the mercies of God, I think there's hope. The Christian life is all about grace, begins and ends, gospel change with grace, because we'll find that his grace is stronger than our sin. 
It's all about grace. But then secondly, gospel change encompasses all of life. So finally, Paul gets to an imperative. He tells us what to do. Finally, what do we do? And here's what he says, verse 1 again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What we want Paul to say here is an imperative that we can do to make sacrifices, to bring sacrifices, to give sacrifices, but that's not what Paul does. He says to be a sacrifice. We want him to say, give 10% of your money and this act, do act, this activity for the church and, and stop doing these activities and start doing these. But he asks for so much more than that. He asks for all of us to present our bodies, the, the physical manifestation of who we are in our encounters in the world, every conversation that we have, every thought that we think, everything that we do from the important to the little, from our jobs to changing diapers to tying our shoes, all of it is to be given as a sacrifice to the good king. That actually what I think Paul has in mind here is the whole burnt offering from Leviticus, a sacrifice in the old a testament sacrificial system where something is given to God and wholly consumed in fire, all of it gone. He's asking for all of us here. And the question that we have to ask is, how do we do this? I'm actually kind of nervous to bring this to you because I know that you are a busy people and I know that we have sacrificed a great deal over the past year and a half and beyond. How can Jesus ask for so much? But what we have to see is that Jesus never asks us for something that he hasn't already done for us. That for us to be a living sacrifice for Jesus is empowered by the fact that he was our dying sacrifice. That the second person of the Trinity came here, took on flesh in order to live a life in this broken world for his people, to gather his people, to go to the cross on behalf of his people, to die in their place, to pour out his blood, to rise again in new life for his people, to give them that life, to be united with us in life and in death, and then to ascend to the right hand of the Father to do what? To intercede for us, which he is still doing today. That Jesus gives all of himself for his people, holding nothing back. And so when he looks at you, he's not concerned about one or two things. He's not concerned about rounding you out a little bit. He wants all of you. There's not one thing in this universe and not one part of you that Jesus can't say that, that is mine. And here's why this is good news. Because Paul says this is your spiritual worship or true worship or reasonable worship. This is why you were created to belong to him, to give yourself to him, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Because we are all living as sacrifices for something. The only question is what? We are all giving ourselves over to our jobs or our families. We are all giving ourselves over to our children or our reputation. And those are not good, bad things. Those are great things. But they are not the ultimate thing. That actually to live as a living sacrifice is to see that Jesus is worthy of our sacrifice. One of my favorite things as a campus minister, I have a lot of favorite things as a campus minister, I love my job, but one of my favorite things is to see students get engaged. And it's not really uh, for the reason you think, although I love weddings and premarital counseling and all of those things, 
I really love seeing the transformation that takes place uh, within a college male when that happens. That a college guy who may or may not be going to class, a college guy who may or may not be showering regularly, a college guy who may or may not have his life together, all of a sudden wakes up and realizes, I'm dating the girl of my dreams, and I need to do something. And so here's what he does, naturally. He begins to sacrifice. All of a sudden, he sacrifices his social life in order to get a job. All of a sudden, he starts saving up money instead of spending it on himself. All of a sudden, he takes all that money that he's never had before and walks into a jewelry store, which he's never been before, to buy this tiny object that he cares nothing about. But all of a sudden, he knows cut clarity and all of those C's. He knows everything there is to know about it. And he goes to the scariest sacrifice of all, which is to go before her parents and to ask permission to do this whole thing. And then he goes to plan the engagement proposal which is an orchestration now. That he's never planned an event in his life, but now all of a sudden he has photographers and a party standing by and all of these things happening. Then to get on one knee and to give that ring away with no financial return on that investment whatsoever. Why does he do that? That's a lot of sacrificing. But we know, right? That that's what you do when you find something of infinite value. You'll give whatever it takes to get it. To begin to live as living sacrifice is to see Jesus as worthy of our sacrifice and his beauty and his perfection and his grace and the gospel that he has accomplished for us. That that's actually the life that we were meant to live, to give all of ourselves to him because he is worthy. What is that thing that you need to go before Jesus in an open hand and say, Jesus, I love this, but this is really yours. Do with it as you will. What is it that you need to hold open in an open hand instead of grabbing it for ourselves? What is it? Is it our reputation or our family? Jesus, they are yours anyways. Is it our money? Jesus, it's all yours anyways. Is it our life and our time? It's all yours. And to be vulnerable for a second? That as a campus minister, I have to be willing to say, this is my ministry, and I want it to go a certain way, but Jesus, it's really yours. Do with it as you will. My pastor in college was a man named Sinclair Ferguson, and he used to say that what God does in our hearts is he's pokes and prods, and he's looking for the sore spots. And he's doing it not to hurt us, but what he's doing is to find the spots in our heart where we will say, God, you can have everything else, but not that. What is that for you? And can we see King Jesus is worthy of our sacrifice? that it's actually why we were created to live. Gospel change is all about grace and encompasses all of our life, every part of us. And lastly, it happens slowly. And we need to hear this because we want gospel change to happen immediately. We want it to happen by this afternoon. But that's not the way God works. Paul goes on to tell us more about what gospel change looks like. And he says this, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Two commands, but they're two passive commands. In other words, these things are happening to us. 
that everyone on earth is being conformed or transformed, that we're either looking more and more like the world or we're looking more and more like Jesus. Those are the two paths ahead, and we all know what being conformed feels like. Conformed is being molded and shaped and forced. We know what it feels like to be like this world, to think about temporal things right in front of us instead of heavenly things, to be consumed with the standard the world puts upon us that we have to live up to, but we can never do it, to go by the world's definition of the good life, and we'll never get it. It's exhausting. But Paul says there's another way. Not being conformed, but being transformed, which is a more powerful word, by the way. That's a supernatural work, being transformed. But I hope you know, and, and this is going to be a little bit of a grammar lesson, but Paul's grammar is confusing because this is a passive command, a passive imperative. And so the question is, how do we do something that you're saying is being done to us? And he answers the question by saying, that this transformation takes place through the renewal of your mind. And what does that mean? And it means in a world full of lies, we as God's people give ourselves over to truth. That we throw ourselves over at a God who does not remain silent, but has spoken to his people in his word, that this word is living and is active. That we throw ourselves at it even as we come to worship church to hear the Bible read and the Bible preached and the Bible sung and the Bible prayed and to go to the table with both sacrament and word that we hear what God has to say about who he is and who we are and what is true about beauty and success and gospel and grace and love. That we actually allow the word, God's word, to reorient the way that we see the world, that we begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates and desire what he desires. But this happens slowly. And it happens over a long period of time. As Sinclair Ferguson says, it takes your whole life to give your whole life to Christ. Because God is not satisfied with superficial change. He wants deep heart change. He wants your desires. And so he calls us to renew our minds by his word, that through life, through testing, that we might look more and more like him. But what does this look like in the real world? I had a professor who used to tell this story that when he was overseas getting his graduate degree, he was working in a church that was on the outskirts of town in a rural community with a lot of farmers. And there was a woman in that church, a very devout woman, loved Jesus, was there every time the church doors were open. She was a pillar of the church. But she always came alone because her husband, who was a farmer outside of town, was not a Christian and was actually known as a pretty harsh and angry man that most people wanted to avoid. But one day, the church was hosting an evangelistic event, and she drug her husband, forced him to come, and it was there he heard the gospel, he was converted, and he came into the life of the church, was baptized in the church, started being discipled by the church, and being a part of the normal means of grace of the church. But about a year in, he came home from work, and he opens the door and slams it shut, and his wife turns around and says, what's wrong? And he says, what's wrong? I have been angry all day. From the moment I got up to the moment I got here, I have been mad at you. I've been mad at myself. I've been mad at the church. I've been mad at my work. I've been mad at the people who are around me. I have grown angrier and angrier all day. And I don't know what Jesus is all about. I don't know what he's supposed to be doing, but I'm angrier today than I've ever been. And I don't think it's working. And his wife smiles at him. 
and says, I have seen you come home from work every day angry, but I've never seen you come home upset that you were angry. I've never even seen you notice that you were angry. Maybe that's Jesus. What the renewing of your mind looks like in this transformation is not going to be this all of a sudden I'm perfect and everything's good. But what it might look like is slow change deep in the heart where you desire to look more like Jesus and not the world. That all of a sudden those sin patterns that you've had for a very long time, all of a sudden guilt begins to conjure up in your heart. And you begin to actually hate those things. That's not you. That's the spirit of work inside of you. Renewing your mind, making you more like Jesus. Where maybe you've never really thought twice about evangelism. But all of a sudden, that person in your life that doesn't know Jesus, that begins to bother you that they don't know Jesus. And that you all of a sudden feel a desire for them to know Jesus. That's not you. That's the spirit at work inside of you, renewing your mind by his word, transforming you to be more like Jesus. And maybe you have that neighbor I always use my neighbor as an illustration. This isn't a real neighbor. I love all my neighbors, but maybe there's that neighbor that you never really want to talk to. And all of a sudden, you begin to start feeling feelings of affection for them. Like you kind of like them. You kind of love them. And that you're drawn to them because you're worried about them. That's not you. That's the Spirit of God at work in you, transforming your mind by His Word. And what I'm not doing is lowering the bar of sanctification, that there are sin patterns that we need to get out of and repent quickly. But I wonder if you could be encouraged by looking at your own life and seeing what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians, that we are being renewed from one degree of glory to the next, slowly. But that he said in Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The Spirit of God is at work in his people. It just doesn't look like the way we want it to look, but it's God's way. I sometimes say that I want God to work in my life like a back massage. Typically the way God works in my life is open heart surgery without anesthesia, but it's because he loves me and because he's doing a deeper work than superficial change. He wants my heart. What would gospel change look like for you? I'm not a part of this church. I wish I was. But isn't it amazing to be a part of a community of God's people where you are growing in this transformation together and able to see in one another what Jesus is doing and able to encourage one another what Jesus is doing. And Paul's invitation here is to lean in to that transformation and to trust Jesus. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning because we all want to change. Uh, we all want to see things in our life go away. We all want to see desires change. And Lord, you are powerful enough to do that, and we ask you to do it. We ask, Jesus, that we see you as worthy of our sacrifice, worthy of our whole life, the good king that we're all looking for. But Lord, we pray that we can be encouraged to see what you've already been doing and that we can lean into that process, to trust your word, to trust your law, to have a zeal to live life after you. Help us. Help us live the transformed life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.